My name is Jane Olmeyer and I am the director of the Trinity Long Room Hub, which is at Trinity's Institute for the Arts and Humanities. So I'm delighted to be here. Um, for those of you who haven't been to one of our Behind the Headlines, the whole purpose of the series is to provide deeper analysis to current issues that are quite literally behind the headlines, but to draw very particularly uh, on the longer-term perspectives of arts and humanities uh, research, because we're really trying to deepen understanding uh, to come really combat uh, simplification and polarisation. Now, tonight we bring you together for a talk on an extremely uh, polarised issue in Irish society and one that has been very much at the forefront of public debate. Uh, in the uh, panel discussion this evening, uh, we have four uh, uh, speakers and I'm very, very uh, delighted uh, uh, to welcome our four speakers. Uh, they're each going to take a very different perspective, uh, legal perspectives, historical perspectives, policy uh, perspectives on uh, the current uh, uh, status um, uh, of abortion in Ireland. I want to be very clear that tonight is not a pro-choice or pro-life debate on abortion. That's not what this is about. Um, it's a discussion which will encompass all views uh, and we hope make a meaningful uh, contribution uh, to public debate on the uh, issue. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our four panellists and I'm going to introduce all four of them at the outset. Uh, the first um, uh, is uh, Dr. Georgina Largi, who is from the School of uh, Histories and Humanities, and will look at how the criminalisation of abortion has been shaped uh, through various historical factors, including medicine, religion and class. Dr. Largi is the Glasnevin Trust Assistant Professor in Public History and Cultural Heritage at Trinity, uh, and her work is very much focused on social history and in particular the history of suicide, uh, death and poverty in 19th and 20th century uh, Ireland. She's also been uh, or very interested in the history of institutions including workhouses, psychiatric hospitals, uh, prisons and Magdalen asylums. Our second speaker this evening is Dr Catherine Conlon from Trinity's School of Social Work and Social Policy. Uh, tonight, Catherine will be looking at the emergence of crisis uh, pregnancy as a policy construct, uh, uh, focusing particularly on how women's abortion narratives both gave shape to and have been shaped by this uh, construct. Uh, Catherine is, uh, as I say, in, uh, she's an assistant professor in the School of uh, Social Policy and Social Work, and her research interests are on uh, gender, sexuality and reproductive health, intergenerational family relations, uh, sexual socialisation and critical qualitative uh, methodologies. She's made a number of important uh, uh, policy-related uh, uh, interventions including uh, uh, some for the uh, HSE uh, crisis pregnancy uh, programme. Our third speaker this evening is Professor Ivana Bacic. Um, uh, uh, of course, Ivana 
is well known uh, to us all. She's the Reed Professor of Criminal Law here at Trinity. Uh, she's a barrister and uh, uh, teaches in our law school. And when she has time, because I don't know where she finds the time, she's also a senator for Dublin University. Ivana's one of the busiest people I know, and I'm pretty busy, but I'm telling you, nothing can compete with Ivana. Um, her interests uh, include criminal law and criminology, constitutional law, feminist theories in law, human rights and equality issues in law. Finally, our uh, fourth speaker this evening is Professor William Binchy, uh, who will identify the values that underlie the Eighth Amendment and uh, assess how they compare with those underlying uh, the case for repeal. Um, uh, again, William Binchy will be known to many of us here. Uh, he was the Regis Professor of Law at Trinity, uh, also an Irish Human Rights uh, Commissioner, a visiting fellow at Corpus Christi uh, College in Cambridge, and also at the Institute of European and Comparative Law in Oxford, uh, a special legal advisor and family law reform to the Department of Justice uh, and uh, uh, research councillor to the Law Reform Commission. So four very, very, very distinguished uh, panellists. So without further ado, if I could in, uh, invite you to uh, uh, give a very uh, warm welcome to our first speaker, uh, Dr. Jo Georgina Lardy. Sorry, Georgina. Um, the study of abortion by Irish historians has been fairly limited until fairly recently. There are a small number of scholarly articles that focus on the 20th century, one or two that examine folklore sources, um, and no dedicated monograph as of yet. Much of what has been written focuses on the 20th century and the post-1967 and legalisation of abortion in England period. So why have historians neglected the issue of abortion? Firstly, social history, including women's history, was largely ignored in favour of political historical studies. Secondly, abortion itself was criminalised in statute law in the 19th century and therefore conducted in secret, making it difficult for historians to recover. And finally, as historian Leanne McCormack notes, successful operations went undetected and therefore left no traces for the historian. But how was abortion understood and treated in the Irish past? We need to consider the case of Ireland more broadly first. Along with infanticide, abortion was one of two of the oldest and most wide-ranging forms of population control. Although both were condemned by Christianity almost from its outset, both were present in most, if not all, Christian nations. In Ireland, once conquest by England had been consolidated in the 17th century, English common law existed throughout the country, so common law background here is quite relevant. Traditional teaching was that a fetus had no independent life until the mother could feel movement or quickening. This usually occurs between the fourth and fifth month of pregnancy. And according to R. Sauer, the common law failed to impose any criminal penalties before that time, i.e. before quickening. Abortion after quickening was punishable by a fine and imprisonment from the 15th century onwards, though legal commentators suggest that the, the punishments were not imposed until after 1800. Further legislation in England in 1803 introduced into statute law the distinction that had existed in common law of the before and after quickening, 
but in a new development, it introduced punishment for abortions procured before quickening. Punishment ranged from a fine to transportation, whereas abortion after quickening could be punishable by death. In 1861, the Offences Against the Person Act further stipulated that procuring or assisting to procure an abortion at any stage in the pregnancy was a criminal offence. This law remained on the statute books after independence was achieved in Ireland in 1922. Alongside criminalising the Act itself, the 1929 Censorship of Publications Act and the 1935 Criminal Law Amendment Act both prohibited the advertisement and sale of medicines used as abortifacients. Subsequent prohibition of abortion was felt necessary by the early 1980s when the Catholic hierarchy feared that constitutional protection of privacy would be used to permit a liberalisation of the treatment of those who procured an abortion. So despite legal sanctions against abortion, historical evidence suggests that in Ireland, social condemnation and public opinion appears to have been much more lenient than the law suggested. A quick search of criminal statistics from the pre-famine period revealed that only one or two people every year were prosecuted for procuring an abortion. In 1811, one person was committed to trial for abortion in Limerick. That person was convicted and um, received both a fine and a custodial sentence. In 1834, a convicted felon was sentenced to seven years' transportation um, for procuring an abortion in Antrim. And that same year, both Londonderry and Oma jails returned one prisoner each as being convicted of administering drugs to procure an abortion. Despite these apparently low conviction rates, Dr. Dias, who worked as a dispensary doctor in Rathangan in County Kildare, testified to the Poor Law Inquiry in 1834 that women have often applied to me to procure an abortion. I know four or five instances this moment in this parish. In Londonderry, according to the Presbyterian minister, Mr. Steen, the mothers of bastard children rarely desert and never destroy them, but frequently procure abortions by medicines and overexertion. Later in the century, between 1876 and 1895, there were 19 people reported for having procured an abortion, and 14 of these were convicted. A similar pattern is observable for the 20th century. Only three abortion cases were prosecuted between 1948 and 1956, according to the work of Sandra McAvoy. In the 1950s, a Dublin detective noted that we know very little about abortion in Ireland, but we understand that it is fairly prevalent. It is done in secret. Similar has been found in Belfast, where in 1941, the master of, or the head of the Jubilee Maternity Hospital in that city noted that there were between 800 and 1,000 abortion-related cases admitted to his hospital every year. And this all suggests that in instances of abortions that reached the attention of the legal authorities, that these figures were low in comparison to the real figure, which is something we would most likely never know. These tantalising pieces of evidence, combined with the well-known abortion trail from Ireland to England from the mid-20th century onwards, to procure abortions legally available there, suggests that there has always been this gap 
between public opinion and statute law. It would appear that this gap persisted despite the fact that the Catholic hierarchy and apparent compliance with Catholic teachings on moral questions had been, become so significant in the newly independent Irish state. However, the rate or number of abortions in the past is only one of a number of interesting questions that emerge when we look at the issue historically. Why women resorted to abortion, how they did so, and who they were are equally significant. Historical studies suggest two reasons why women resorted to abortion. The first was stigma attached to single motherhood, and the second was poverty. This link between abortion and single motherhood is certainly evident in 19th century records. The context in which abortion was discussed in the Poor Law Inquiry mentioned earlier was always in the context of bastardy or illegitimacy. There was a lack of support for single women in 19th and 20th century Ireland. The only place they could gain relief in 19th century Ireland was in the workhouse after 1838. For single women then, the double burden of shame and economic stress drove them to commit abortion and infanticide. In the 20th century, the stigma of single motherhood persisted, leading women to end their pregnancies through a variety of means. Abortion, alongside infanticide, exposure or institutional <coughs> confinement, were part of the limited spectrum of choices women had when seeking to avoid rearing an illegitimate child. Rearing a child as a single mother in a period when there was no state or charitable welfare support beyond carceral care for mothers and their children um, is significant, or was difficult. And at a time when social and religious condemnation of single motherhood meant you were shunned by respectable people and couldn't find a job, both of these factors combined um, to lead to poverty, destitution and often institutionalisation for mother and child. Women who sought abortions in the past did so because their pregnancy, regardless of their marital status, was both a personal and a family crisis. Married women who appear in the historical record usually sought an abortion for medical reasons. Awareness of earlier pregnancies and the impact on their health a further pregnancy would only result in the reduction of their health to the point that they could not take care of the children they already had. It is unsurprising in this context that abortion was viewed as a viable option for women with limited support. However, as historian Elaine Farrell notes, a professional, a professional abortion was only an option for a woman with contacts or means to source a practitioner. The time to have the operation and the finances to pay for that procedure. Therefore, the authority of the church and state in the matter of pregnancy and fertility has always had a much more tangible and practical impact on women who had neither the funds nor the knowledge to secure an abortion, that is, poor women. Whether it be social, economic or medical factors that tip the balance in favour of an abortion, the sense from the historical record is that, women who sought abortion in, is that the women who sought abortion in these circumstances, it was largely a social, medical or economic crisis. Thank you. Um, since the foundation of the modern Irish state in 1922, women's reproductive bodies have central, centrally featured in attempts by the state to carve out a particular Irish identity. And this seems to have borne down most heavily on women's lived lives. 
The nation as mother era has been symbolised through a romanticised notion of motherhood, intended at once to evoke morality and vulnerability. In the process, women's sexual and reproductive behaviour have become linked with the dignity and integrity of the nation. Such narratives of, na of nationalist personification regard women as objects, deny them agency and refuse their lived experiences. Mother and baby homes, whose purposes and practices continue to reveal themselves even to us at this moment, were <coughs> institutions supported by an alliance of the state and churches for the purposes of shaming and containing women and the moral transgression that their pregnancies and their children represented. The insertion of the Eighth Amendment into the Constitution in 1983, I would argue, set out to reinvigorate the symbolism of a morally superior era and continue to invoke regulation of women's sexual and reproductive autonomy as a vehicle for this. The impetus for the campaign to insert a constitutional position on abortion in the early 1980s has been explained as a response to efforts on the part of feminist organisations to campaign for the legalisation of abortion in Ireland. Others would consider it was a response to the wider changes in the status of women affected by women's activism through the 1970s, for example, that have been successful in challenging the constitutional ban on contraception or challenging the requirement on women to resign employment in the public service on marriage. Another argument is that the amendment was a reaction to rapid fertility change in Ireland, as women enthusiastically adopted fertility control following the legalisation of artificial contraception in Ireland in 1979. What are the origins for the impetus of the Eighth Amendment? It seems that women's agency in relation to their reproductive bodies was a key catalyst for this initiative. In focusing on the continued effect of the Eighth Amendment now, it, as an instrument of Irish law and policy, it seems that it continues to regard women as objects to deny their agency and to refuse their lived experiences. As a policy construct, this seems to be its key effect. Behind the headline of abortion as constitutionally prohibited in Ireland, there is and continues to be a de facto Irish abortion rate. So in 1983, 3,677 Irish women were recorded as accessing abortion services in England and Wales. In 2015, 3,451 women were recorded in these statistics. And we have, there is some evidence that women have also travelled elsewhere in the EU to access abortion, as well as, in some cases, accessing the abortion pill online. Legal provision of abortion elsewhere has allowed the denial of the fact that Irish women continue to need and access abortion. But the question is, at what cost to women? Every day, a woman in Ireland who discovers she is pregnant while feeling unprepared or unable to anticipate becoming a mother again or for the first time, or who is presented with a diagnosis of a health condition for herself, or of a diagnosis of a fatal fetal abnormality in a pregnancy she initially welcomed, faces the full weight of the constitutional prohibition on abortion. As accounts of court cases taken in relation to <coughs> Article 43.3 set out, at times individual women also have had to personally take on the full weight of the constitutional prohibition through the Irish or European courts. These court proceedings have been uh, faced by women at times of unimaginable personal distress in their lives 
not least in the case of the young woman X, who at 14 was pregnant as a result of rape and suicidal when her family sought to bring her to England for a therapeutic abortion. The X case generated considerable unease for the citizens of Ireland when faced with the real effects of the constitutional amendment. The government of the day announced a programme to deal with crisis pregnancies that comprised funding for counselling and commissioning a study of women's decision making on abortion. The study was undertaken by a multidisciplinary team from Trinity and I was a research officer in that research. Its design set out to contextualise crisis pregnancies within the context of all other responses women would have to their pregnancy and to understand women's decision to seek abortion in the context of other decisions they would make, either to pursue motherhood or to consider adoption. This was intended to work against the positioning of women seeking abortion as peculiar or other. Ultimately, the study design entailed travelling to England and meeting with Irish women there who were attending clinics to access abortion. During the study, and later again for subsequent research, I shared many Ryanair flights with women who turned up in Liverpool and London clinics where the research was carried out. I witnessed their journeys to access abortion as well as listened to their stories. Talking with women who decided on abortion <coughs> revealed an aspect of their experience that abstract debates on the politics of abortion frequently obscured. That is, the very moral character of the decisions women took in seeking abortion. Women described a range of factors shaping their decisions to have an abortion and related to the many roles that a woman occupies at the time or anticipated occupying in their future. Their roles as daughters, as students, as workers, as partners or wives, as prospective mothers and in some cases as mothers already. Women portrayed how all of these roles, some compatible, others competing, shaped and constrained their decision making. They contemplated abortion alongside other outcomes, particularly motherhood, and considered how their current position aligned with the optimum conditions for motherhood, for mothering. <coughs> they asked how well were they equipped to attend to, to the responsibilities of caring for a child, emotionally, socially and economically. They referred to messages they encountered relentlessly regarding what are the best conditions to rear a child, and these seemed much at odds with the conditions under which they find themselves pregnant. Continuing with this pregnancy would mean a life of struggle and hardship for herself and her child, compounded by stigmatising discourses of welfare sponger and low achiever persistently attaching to the label of lone mother. Women with children already considered the impact of this pregnancy on their ability to meet existing children's needs. Women in the study related a complex decision-making process that was their responsibility alone and that they engaged in with reference to their current and imagined future selves, relationships and children. The study critically asserted that there are social, relational and moral dimensions to the decisions women make in seeking abortion. The government response to this research report was to establish the Crisis Pregnancy Agency, through which the uniquely Irish policy construct of crisis pregnancy has emerged. The statutory instrument establishing the agency, laterally a programme of the HSE, set out its mandate as reducing the number of crisis pregnancies, reducing the number of women with crisis pregnancies who opt for abortion, and providing counselling and welfare services after crisis pregnancy. This construct has seen a complex architecture of services for women with their own distinct nomenclature of positive options, positive options emerge. The central pillar of the service is free, non-directive counselling. However, unusual for therapeutic services, 
Counselling under this programme is governed by laws derived from subsequent constitutional amendments regulating the provision of information on abortion services available in other jurisdictions. Where women present to counselling seeking information on abortion, the counsellor is required by law to discuss all possible outcomes of the pregnancy with her. The premise here appears to be that women seeking abortion are potentially deficient in their capacity to consider all aspects of their situation. This stands in contrast to the findings of the Women in Pregnancy Study. However, it presents is consistent with the framing of women and their reproductive bodies as in need of close and detailed regulation by a paternalistic state. Which brings me back to where I started. A constant feature of the Irish legal and policy landscape seems to be the position that nothing could potentially be more morally destructive to the Irish state than a women's sexual and reproductive autonomy. Okay, well, thank you very much, Jane, for the invitation to speak tonight. And uh, I think it's great to see so many here. And it's a topic, the topic of abortion in modern Ireland is, a, Ireland is an ideal topic, for the, I think, for the Behind the Headline series, particularly given what we've heard from Georgina and from Catherine about the nature of, uh, the real nature, the reality of abortion in Ireland for so many women. And the fact that for so many, for so long, for so many decades, uh, this is a lived reality that has been literally behind the headlines, hidden behind legal and social and political constructs that have camouflaged and obscured the reality of what is going on in Ireland. I'm going to take up where Catherine left off in talking about a little more about the legal framework for regulation of abortion post-1983 and to talk a little also about current um, and future, and I hope future, directions. But I would just say, to bring you back briefly 28 years ago to, um, uh, to 1989, when I was standing in this lecture theatre, in fact, as, a, as then president of the Trinity College Students' Union. And the reason why I bring you back to that date was because at that point I was, along with my fellow officers, facing prison for providing women in crisis pregnancy, the construct Catherine talked about, providing women, let's just say providing desperate women with information on where they could access abortion services in England. And for providing the, these desperate women with the much needed information, we were threatened with prison by a group calling itself the Society for the Protection of the Unborn Child, or SPUC. We were threatened with prison because, as a result of the 1983 Eighth Amendment, the courts had ruled in a series of cases that it was illegal for anyone to provide information on the means of accessing abortion services abroad. And in those pre-internet days, that literally meant the names, addresses and phone numbers of clinics in London, Liverpool and Manchester. In my naivety, age 21, coming into office as president of the Students' Union, I had no idea that part of our daily job would be to take calls and to see women in person who had called into the offices of the Students' Union in House 6 in Front Square, desperate to get this information. They were desperate because Spock had, in a series of court cases I've described, closed down information services being run by women's counselling service, women's counselling centres. And at that time, in the late 80s, the only bodies still publicly offering this information were the Students' Unions. A very proud record for the Students' Unions to take that stand. But it was at a cost that we took it. And the cost was the court case. We were uh, threatened, as I say, with prison. We uh, were saved from prison by a uh, clever legal argument by our senior counsel, a little-known lawyer called Mary Robinson, <laughs> then, uh, then uh, a lecturer in Trinity, one of our lecturers. 
Uh, she used legal argument based on European Union law to uh, successfully steer the case into the European Court of Justice, where it rumbled on for several years and was then overtaken by other events, in the course of which we were declared bankrupt in Stubbs Gazette and so on. So there was a cost to standing up to, uh, the spot, to spot and to the state. And I see others in the audience here who know uh, and have campaigned long on this issue, Mary, Dr. Mary Henry, Mary Benatti and others. So, uh, so many of, uh, of you will be aware of the long campaign. And that is just a small snippet and a small and very minor experience based on the Eighth Amendment. But I would say it's reflective of the blight or chill that the Eighth Amendment has continued to pass over generations of Irish women. I'm somebody who's too young to have voted in 1983, and yet I now have daughters who are growing up under this legal blight or chill, whose rea the reality of whose reproductive lives, I hope, will not be obscured behind the headlines, as so many others have been. So just to remind you, the 1983 amendment passed uh, into the Constitution that year provides that the state acknowledges the right to life of the unborn and with due regard to the equal right to life of the mother, guarantees in its laws to respect and as far as practicable by its laws to defend and vindicate that right. And as Catherine has said, I, I would also argue that in its legal language, in its legal framing, this article um, portrays women merely as vessels, denies us reproductive autonomy, denies us moral agency and choice. It has not prevented, I would argue, one crisis pregnancy, in fact. What it has done is compound the crisis of pregnancy for many, many women and girls, particularly those who are young, who are in poverty, or who face legal difficulties in accessing abortion services abroad. And above all, this amendment has endangered women's lives by casting a chill or a blight not only on women, but on the doctors who seek to provide obstetric services in this country by making them afraid to intervene to save women's lives or to save women's health. The amendment has generated a series of tragic and traumatic cases for women. And, and you know, I could go, um, you'll all be aware of many of them. Catherine has already spoken about the 1992X case. But just briefly to say that that case established a test for legal abortion in Ireland, but it's a highly restrictive test. The Supreme Court in the X case said only where it is established uh, that there is a real and substantial risk to the life of the mother, which can only be avoided by termination of pregnancy, is such termination permissible. And it took many decades, it took decades after the X case to, uh, uh, judgment was handed down for, for the legislature, for the Oireachtas finally in 2013, to legislate for the conditions under which a life-saving abortion may in fact be carried out in Ireland. Since the 2013 Act was passed, there have been, we know, 52 terminations of pregnancy in Ireland to save women's lives, 26 in 2014, another 26 in 2015. So it's vital legislation for those women and their families, undoubtedly. But it certainly has not uh, created the sort of floodgate effect that its opponents suggested it would create in 2013. Nor does it serve the vast majority of Irish women who have to still continue to travel abroad to access abortions on grounds other than risk to life. And we know from the British Department of Health figures that 3,451 women travelled in that way in 2015. That is 63 a week or 9 a day who continue to travel. So... What, can, what, what else has the, has the uh, amendment done? Well, as I've said, a succession of cases, of which X was just the first. But the effect of the X case was profound. I think, as Catherine has said, it did provide the Irish people with the first indication of the real impact of the Eighth Amendment, literally behind the headlines. It forced people to look beyond the abstract legal argument of equating rights to life of an abstract entity called the unborn with an idealised construct of mother. And it forced people to confront the reality, the stark reality, of a raped 14-year-old who was suicidal because she had been impregnated through the rape. 
And as a result of that, uh, the uh, government were forced to put to the people referenda to deal with some of the consequences of the Eighth Amendment. That is referendums which prescribed in law the rights to information and to travel. Which cl- that's, those are the political developments that overtook our case, uh, the students' information case. So we have now the ultimate hypocrisy enshrined in the amended Eighth Amendment, which is that abortion is fine once it happens somewhere else and once women uh, travel abroad for it. We also have the strange situation where the Regulation of Information Act, as Catherine has said, forbids referrals for abortion abroad but allows information to be provided. And since then, we've seen a series of other cases. A C case in 97, a D case of fatal fetal abnormality in 06, the ABC cases in 2010, the tragic death of Savita Halapanavar in 2012, and the Ms. Y case in 2014 involving a pregnant asylum seeker, and a further and deeply tragic case in December of that year involving a young woman who was brain dead but whose doctors could not turn off life support because of the fetal heartbeat. And it took a high court judgment to rule that the life support could be terminated there. Even just last summer, we saw another case, in fact, a deportation case, where a high court judge suggested that the unborn might, in fact, have rights equivalent (coughs) to that of a child. A case currently under appeal to the Supreme Court, but raises an appalling vista of the sort of other unforeseen consequences that may arise as a result of the Eighth Amendment. So, for all the reasons I've outlined, for the series of cases, for the, for the effect that the Eighth Amendment has had on real, the real lives of women and girls in Ireland, and for the symbolic way in which it conflates the woman and the unborn, I would argue that the Eighth Amendment has to be repealed. And it has to be repealed and not replaced with any other text in the Constitution, because we should have learned by now that the Constitution is no place to regulate medical practice. But in fact, what we need to see is legislation, that the Oireachtas be given the freedom to legislate for the conditions under which abortion may legally be carried out in Ireland. The sort of conditions, the sort of nuanced uh, situations which the people have uh, expressed support for in recent opinion polls, such as abortion on grounds of fatal fetal abnormality, risk to the health of the woman, or rape or incest, as well as risk to life. In the Labour Party, we've put forward legislation that we would introduce if the Eighth Amendment were to be repealed, and I think it's vital that we would now be having a debate about the sort of legislation that could be passed if the Eighth Amendment were in fact repealed. I'm hopeful the Citizens' Assembly will make a recommendation for that referendum. That's where the current political climate is certainly at, is that the Citizens' Assembly will be deciding at the end of April on a recommendation for government, and certainly I and others will be continuing to campaign for the holding of that referendum later this year or early next year in order to end the chill and allow us finally to move beyond the headlines and, re- and confront the reality of crisis pregnancy in Ireland. Thank you. Well, I'm afraid I'm going to break Jane's rules a little bit. Not on time, Jane, you're okay there. Um, but uh, rather on uh, the notion, I think she said, let's not talk in simplicities and let's not talk from a partisan point of view. I am slightly going to break the first, and it will be clear to you that I am a supporter of the Eighth Amendment and an opponent of the argument uh, that it should be repealed on the basis of a right to choose. I'm going to speak for nine minutes. I'm going to speak in very simple propositions, but I think it's necessary to do so because um, what hasn't been said in much of the debate, uh, and our three speakers who have spoken uh, thus far have mentioned, and very rightly mentioned, uh, the difficulties that have uh, faced, and sometimes the profound difficulties that have faced women over the centuries and right up to today. But what there has been very little discussion about is the other aspect to abortion, which cannot be just simply ignored, which is the fact that an unborn human being has their life terminated. 
Now, that can't be unmentionable. It has to be mentioned. Because if abortion did not involve the termination of the life of a, an early life of a human being, we would not all be here. It's not an issue. It would just be a medical procedure, and there'd be no moral question or no ethical issue at all. But there is an ethical issue. There's an issue of justice. There's an issue of human rights, which we cannot simply ignore. Now, Ivana mentioned the abstract entity called the unborn. With respect, I disagree with Ivana. It's not an abstract entity at all. It's a very material, flesh and blood, early human being. We have to confront that. And if we confront it from the standpoint of human rights, we have to at least ask ourselves, why is it that in the case of an early human being in that stage of gestation, from conception to the ninth month of pregnancy, that human rights and the normal principles of human rights, which we all adhere to every day of our lives, uh, should not apply. The normal principles of human rights, if I may use that language, uh, which you'll find in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, is to recognise the inherent worth and equal value of every human being. And that goes right to the heart of human rights philosophy. And if that is so, how is it that a right to terminate the life of a human being should exist? Well, there would appear to be uh, one of two reasons. It's not a human being. Well, are you sure it's not a human being? It certainly is a human being by any dreary verbal definition. So it is a human being. So this general principle of, as a general proposition, we do not have the entitlement intentionally to take the life of a human being. Well, perhaps it's a lesser human being. Now, are you comfortable with that? Are you comfortable with the idea uh, that you operate a human rights philosophy which involves lesser human beings. Because if we allow for lesser human beings, that is to say, human beings who are okay, but less worthy than other people, sufficiently less worthy to have their lives terminated, we then look around the world, we look to history, uh, we look to perceptions that have existed uh, in society. Uh, you know, it's easy to point the finger at other societies. Good God, Ireland has plenty to feel massively ashamed about. Uh, over the centuries and in recent decades. But we look and we see that there has been a concept of lesser human beings. Lesser human beings because they're poor, because they're black, because they have mental disability, because they're Alzheimer's, they're too old. There is always a tendency in us to categorise human beings, certain human beings, as lesser and less deserving of rights. We can see it in a thousand ways, in a thousand years. And we must ask ourselves, in regard to unborn human beings, are they lesser human beings? And if so, why? If it's a question of size and developmental process, you know, I'm sure many of you uh, have our parents, have brothers and sisters, uh, you have seen early human life that has been born. It's a very messy, muley and squalling uh, phenomenon without very much power, total dependency, uh, total selfishness from the standpoint of the child, no relational capacity other than to demand. That's early human life. Has it got the same value as uh, adults who care for them? Well, in one sense, no. In the sense that they're not as powerful, they're not as strong, no relational capacity, no intellectual development. But the human rights philosophy in which the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is based is that every human being has inherent worth. That is what the amendment says. The amendment is based on the idea of the equal uh, entitlement to life and the equal value of every human being. And those who argue against that proposition have to clarify, have to clarify why precisely in the case of pre-birth 
the human being in question should be subject to have their life terminated. And can I just say, for the next four minutes or so, <coughs> uh, I would just love to ask the simplest of questions about the right to choose. Because, you know, we all are reading uh, material on this day after day in terms of advocacy for the right to choose. But what I'm struck by is the absolute undeveloped character of the argument in favour of the right to choose. And I'm going to ask you the most simple, primitively basic questions. And is it not astounding that these questions have not at least been considered and answered? The first question is, what is the right to choose about? Reply, it has to be the right to choose to take the life of another human being. Not such an obvious ending once that sentence is completed. It's not so obviously uh, a correct proposition. That is the first point I would put. Second point I would put is absolutely accepting the difficulties and the challenges and the crisis element that can present themselves to a woman or girl during pregnancy, not in any sense seeking to airbrush that out of the situation, but rather to ask oneself, the right, just taking it at a basic propositional level, the right to choose. I think the argument tends to be trust women, uh, women make the right choices. Let's imagine a situation, hypothetically, not in the context of abortion, but in the context of an, a person who chooses to end the life of another human being. Let us imagine they chose to end the life of another human being when they themselves thought that that was not the right thing to do, that it, vi it violated their own value system. Now, is there a right to choose abortion in those circumstances? Is there a right to terminate life in those circumstances? Can one have a situation that one has an entitlement which reaches a situation that you are entitled to choose to terminate the life of another human being, even in circumstances where to do so violates your own value system? Maybe yes, maybe no, but it's an interesting question, simple, obvious question, never been discussed, ever. Second question in this area is the right to choose for whatever reason. How about disability? How about sex selection? Are we happy with these notions of a right to choose? Is it so self-evidently obvious that there is a right to choose for those particular reasons? Third, an obvious and simple question. The right to choose at all stages during pregnancy, up to the ninth month? I mean, can that be the case? Because arguments about it's not really a human being, uh, may I say the it in question is he or she. He or she is not really a human being. Uh, it's weak. I think even people who are strong supporters of legalised abortion uh, would find it difficult to argue that a viable ninth-month uh, child in the womb of his or her mother uh, is not a human being. But still a right to choose to terminate that life. These are radical propositions from an ethical point of view, unheard of, frankly, in the general discourse of human rights. Final question I would ask in that, or second last question I would ask in that area is, if there is such a radical uh, moral philosophy being offered of justice, that there is a right to choose a human being in the ninth month of pregnancy which should not be questioned by anyone in our society. If that is so, why does it stop at nine months? Why not nine months and one day after the child has been born? What is the profound moral basis uh, for the location being so crucial in this area? These are very simple, obvious questions. They're never asked. They're never answered. Final thing I would say in this particular area is, well, you know, the unborn entity, I won't call it the unborn child because that would be regarded as question begging, it's just a lump of cells really, 
Well, two points to make on that. And I don't mean, I don't mean to be facile about this. <coughs> One does need to embrace a totally materialistic understanding of the human being in the sense that undoubtedly the, in the early stages it is, a, it is a lump of cells. I've got some slightly startling news for you. So are you and so am I at this moment and in my case not a particularly uh, impressive sequence or combination of cells. We are all human matter. That's not the significance of our life. The significance of human life at all stages is that it has a worth and a value. It has a beauty and you either see it or you don't. Actually, you know, I cannot convince anybody of the worth of the human enterprise. But if you believe in the worth of the human enterprise, I would respectfully say you have to believe it on the basis of the soundest moral principle, which is inherent worth and equal respect for every human. Thank you.